kinesiology wants to tend to profile everything as male and, you know, like 18 to 20 something. And they tend to forget that, you know, movement and the ability to move or find joy from movement depends on the person. Hello and welcome to Disability Movement, Etc. I'm your host, Dr. Andy. Before I introduce my guests, I'd like to quickly mention three things. First, I realize it's been some time since I last released an episode, and I'm sorry for that. Life got to be a bit much this last summer, and I had to prioritize myself as much as possible, so some things took a backseat. I'm back and getting a handle on things, I think, which leads me to my second thing. There's two episodes for today. You may have already noticed, but if you haven't, you're welcome. And the third thing, well, I'll save that for the next episode. My guest for today's episode is Elaine Otstadt. Elaine is a communication specialist from Huntsville, Alabama, whose work is driven by a passion for disability advocacy. Elaine is particularly dedicated to expanding public understanding, person-centered approaches, and working with public agencies to make sure that support systems reflect those person-centered values. Elaine is highly skilled in plain language communication and has a deep experience in working with disability policy and home and community-based services. Elaine was a government relations intern at Centene, where her work addressed the HCBS bills and development of policy roadmap for lobbyists. Currently, Elaine works as a communications and outreach coordinator on projects related to disability advocacy at the Alliance for Citizen-Directed Supports. Elaine has also worked with the Issues Committee with the Autism National Committee and Einsoft's Lights, Camera, Access on several different projects. When not working, Elaine enjoys riding and finding new bike routes, camping, and photography. Our conversation took place live on YouTube last November. If you'd like to watch the video of our conversation, head over to youtube.amcd.wtf. Enjoy. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, sorry about the cat. <laughs> he goes where he goes. <laughs> no worries, no worries. We love, I mean, that's sort of the, the small little joy of, of working from home and working remotely all these years as we get to see everybody's pets. It, it's certainly been an interesting experience. So I guess what do you want to know? Typically, the way we start, the way I like to start is I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm going to let you have you know, sort of this first few moments to either tell us all a story, tell us your experience of how trying to be active, trying to be working in health-related opportunities, what your experience has been with like that, good, bad, all of it. Okay, yeah, sure. So I graduated from UTA there, you know, in the text, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex as part of their first run through the public health program. So um, it was quite the adventure because a lot of my professors themselves, they all had doctorates or at least a master's. And it was like, okay, well, no other department will take us, but the kinesiology department, at least that's my understanding of it. But I was a student and it's kind of like students hear all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So 
is kind of like being part of the kinesiology department, you get to do all this stuff. You get to do the kinesiology labs. You get to do the, oh gosh, all the training and stuff for, you know, they assume you want to go on to be a sports trainer or something like that. But um, instead, I, you know, became more and more interested in policy through my own experiences. I'm so sorry. This cat is. <laughs> That's he's, okay. He's jealous. He's jealous. Yeah. He wants um, a little bit of the spotlight. Yes. Through my own experiences, you know, outside of class, I had some family friends going through some issues and they weren't getting the help they needed. Like, this is a public health issue that somebody who should be on disability or receive supports isn't getting the supports they need. And Texas is such a huge state. And because it's such a huge state, things can be disorganized. And at the time, I was also starting to kind of learn more and cope more with my own disabilities. Like, I started thinking, okay, you know, I had fallen and um, screwed my right knee up. No problem. I'll just, you know, work really hard and I, you know, I won't have to deal with this anymore. But it's turned into a chronic thing. And then, you know, senior year, I fall and basically twist my ankle and, you know, pretty much dislocated everything in the ankle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And it's not fine. So come to find out, talking to family, that the loose joints and the things that tend to stretch and stay injured are hereditary. And I do more digging. It's like, oh, this is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. This is hypermobile joints. This is crap. <laughs> so <laughs> at the same time, I'm like, I have a learning disability. So I'm just being bombarded. On top of that, I've had migraines since I was a young adult. And I'm you know, medicated for them and it helps me get through my day, but it's just things where these are life changing and I can manage them, but there are people who have it worse off in many ways and they're part of a system where the system is unkind to them. And it's like my experience has been the system has potential as unfortunate as that sounds, but we need to make the system work for the people, not the people work for the system. If that yeah, yeah. makes any sense. No, no, it totally does. So I kind of fell into the disability work. I got connected up with the students for disabilities office, basically where they act as a go between on campus to like, I need accommodations for a test. I need accommodations, like more time to take a test, things like that. But they needed somebody to go to student government and say, hey, you got to include us too. So I ended up doing that for the three or four years I was at UTA because I had transferred from Texas Women's over there in Denton. Yeah. That was a very interesting experience. Yeah, I think um, I had read... I think a piece from the American Association of People with Disabilities that kind of profiled that, that piece about you. And you're kind of, from what it sounded like, you're almost tossed into the deep end of disability advocacy work and disability policy. So, I mean, could you talk a little bit more about how that all kind of went down and, and how you navigated it? Yeah. So working for 
the Office for Students with Disabilities as their President's Roundtable representative. Basically, you're going to student government once a month and saying, hey, these are the issues. We're going to weigh in on these and I'm going to vote. And if I think this isn't good for us, I'm not going to vote in favor of it. And a lot of times, um, student president, student body would look for ways to not give me the invitation, to not give me the information I needed so that they would have a way to strike our organization from the list. Because if you um, missed like five or less um, meetings in a semester, you know, you're off the list. So I made it a point to you know, meet every one of those time slots. I even went as far as to talk with my professors and say, hey, I have this going on. Do you mind if I leave class a little bit early? And they said, yeah, sure. It's a sanctioned school activity. Go right ahead. And I kind of fell into it because nobody else wanted to do it. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems to be the case, right? I mean, I think that's, uh, from what I hear, um, from a lot of folks, even even in my own experience, you sort of see there's an issue, you sort of see there's struggling, you might experience something a little bit yourself and then realize, well, nobody else is doing this. So I guess I kind of need to step up and do it myself. Yeah. And at the time I thought, okay, this is relevant to public health. I'll learn something because Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services are part of the public health, you know, broader sphere that we have to work within. And at the same time, it's like, I'll learn something, I'll take something away from this, and then um, I can go on and do something else. But the thing is, is like, I did this, and then I went on and I did the fellowship with Loyola Law at this, you know, started by Tony Coelho himself in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You know, they flew us out there for a week. And then, you know, for the rest of the year, we did online class. Yeah, it's like... Okay, well, maybe I'm not crazy for thinking that public health policy and disability go together because, right. you know, that wasn't what my undergraduate focused on. My undergraduate was very focused on urban and communication. And it's like, okay, communication's really good. Communication is always applicable, but the urban's not really where I'm interested in because I have so many family members who live in rural areas. Like I have family members who have to drive an hour at least to the nearest hospital. They just closed their hospital. Especially when we think of all the stuff that's continuing to to go on with the pandemic and everything. I mean, that's just, you know, we talk so much about access and, and particularly in academia, we, we talk about access and, and I think, we sometimes really forget how certain parts of the country really, how far out they might be and how really a struggle it can be for them to just even find the most basic of, of things to um, access for their, I mean, not just physical activity, but broader health concerns. Right. And I was living down in Waxahachie when I was going to school. And that's, you know, that's not really rural, but when we moved there 20 some odd years ago, my parents and I, it was rural. Mm. It, you know, 
there wasn't a lot of infrastructure there. And it's still the case where the only good internet you can get is like cell tower based. They won't run a broadband or, you know, AT&T hub out much past the highway there. Yeah, it's um, I was actually having a conversation with somebody earlier this week about how the, the more my academic scholarship kind of goes in the direction of, of not just looking at physical activity, but looking at physical activity in you know, the bigger, broader context of health and, and society. And you start to realize it really starts bumping up to all these other issues that we face in society in terms of, you know, like relying on corporations to try to, to get access out to certain places. Or if we even think of certain public health investments of, of recreation spaces or gyms or pools or anything like that, it it just becomes harder and harder when we start layering on everything. You still there, Elaine? Uh-oh. I see you're trying to talk. It's staying there, but I don't hear you. Joy of doing a live stream. There we go. Some technical glitches. Okay, I don't know what happened. I think my internet hates me. Oh, no worries. No worries. All I know is we were we were going and then frozen yeah i i grabbed the cable to hardwire back in all right that seems to be better i think i've got you now so okay good um, yeah we can just pick up where we left off and i guess we we were talking about how you you kind of got tossed into this sort of world of disability advocacy and, and and funny enough you have connection to denton which is where i'm at right now although you're at tw our, our sister college here It'd be awesome if you could talk about how sort of those early experiences sort of provided the foundation for what it sounds like is, is kind of a, a direction you weren't expecting to go in, you know, how that, how that kind of all occurred. Yeah. So I wanted to be a nurse, like just about mm-hmm. every other person who ends up at TW. I thought, okay, I really like science. I can deal with the people part, but you know, I really like science. So like, okay, I'll, you know, go get a nursing degree. And then it's one of those things where I'm looking at stability and trying to think, okay, how is this going to benefit me in the long run? And I just, I could not hack the math for chemistry or the math for TW has this crazy quantum qualitative analysis course that gives everybody nightmares. And it's like, okay, I did okay with basic algebra, but Mm. this is, this is something else entirely. I do not understand how this applies. And then, you know, I would get major anxiety attacks sitting for the big um, American Chemical Society exam at the end of the semester that all the chem courses make you take. And it's like... We never covered any of this. We never covered any of this. And I'm pretty sure we did. I just didn't stick. (laughs) No, I know how that is. Yeah. So I ended up um, dropping from the nursing uh, major and moving over to biology, thinking, okay, it's still the sciences. I like it better. I don't have to deal with people as much. I'm not, you know, having somebody constantly 
beat on that drum, you will kill somebody if you get this wrong. That was another thing to worry about as a nursing major. Like, am I going to kill somebody because I'm not good at math? Then I was still having some problems with math. I transferred to UTA as a microbiology major. And the what I wanted to do with microbiology was not what UTA wanted me to do with microbiology. I was interested in like the epidemiology type stuff. So when public mm-hmm. health came along, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll take the class. I need another elective. And then they open it up as a major. And it's like, you know, it'll take all my nursing credits. It'll take all the, these other credits that I don't know what to do with. And then that's pretty much how I ended up in public health. But then the okay. disability end of it is I had to go get testing for a learning disorder because I was doing pretty bad in chemistry again because somebody said, you need to take chemistry as a micro major. Like, mm. uh, okay, yeah, I can believe that. <laughs> but at the same time, I was doing badly to the point where the dean of the department, really nice guy, just said, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. So, was, and was I got... I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say was um, was disability. So, I mean, was that your sort of your first um, personal experience when getting diagnosed with a learning disability in college or or had that been a part of your identity before then? That had not been a part of my identity. I am what they call, I guess, a late diagnosis, adult diagnosis of Mm -hmm. a learning disability. Or, you know, not one of those neurotypical individuals. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, we fall, I, my wife and I fall in the same camp. So, <laughs> yep. So it's one of those things where you get the diagnosis and then you're like, now what do I do? Because nobody told me how to do this. And a lot of times, adult. Um, Diagnosis don't get the same amount of support that some childhood diagnosis do because it's great that the kids get the support, but if you're an adult, you're kind of like handed a pamphlet and said, Here you go, do some reading. Like, good luck. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, good luck. Like, that's that's helpful, but I need somebody to kind of hold my hand, guide me through this. And now what do I do? (laughs) Absolutely. And so I guess how, so I guess those was kind of happening at the same time then, right? You're sort of, you're introducing kind of your studies into disability, but also going through your own exploration of your own disabilities. And could you talk about how either that helped or, or, or maybe it didn't in some way, either case? I think in some ways um, it was a struggle. I ended up at counseling services at UTA a lot just to kind of sort through what was going on. It helped studies wise because I was able to be able to draw that connection between public health and then disability where it's like, okay, these two should be connected, but why are they not more connected? And I guess that that kind of stems into your sort of your online moniker, right, of public health girl. And so I I guess 
first, what is what does public health mean to you? Because I know it's defined in many, many ways. And, and depending on who you talk to, there's different things that are or are not included. So I guess for you, what does it mean? Well, for me, public health is, you know, we define professionally, and I don't want to throw shade at anybody or anything. I just want to say, you know, professionally, it's defined as this. You know, it's things like it's things like the social determinants of health. It's mm-hmm. things like um, epidemiology. It's things like vaccines. You know, all, all all these things that are very obviously health, but public health to me is also making sure that programs get people what they need, and mm-hmm. that these programs aren't losing sight of the people they need to benefit because sometimes they can get so bogged down in red tape and that frustrates even the people who are working for these programs. They're like, I want to do more, but I can't, my hands are tied. Public health, I think should be a way to kind of bridge that gap between, you know, the people and the programs and policies and things in place that should be able to help them. And so how does that relate to disability then? So you have things like disability support services and you have things like self-direction and person-centered planning. And a lot of that involves bringing the person back into those programs and bringing them these programs back to that idea of nothing about us without us. And somebody you know, told me once that we need to make sure that everybody who needs to be here has a seat at the table. And if they don't have a seat at the table, you need to look and see why they don't have a seat there. The more and more um, I think about it and and really my whole kind of purpose for doing this is is to try and and make the table a little bit bigger, right? To give a space, even just a little one. Uh, I don't have a huge space yet, but use a little bit and and try to help expand that and and bring those issues to to people's awareness because I think and you can correct me if, if I may be wrong in my assumption, but you know, I think a lot of people probably don't mean to exclude disabled folks or don't mean to necessarily not provide access or provide services, but they just, they might not know because we, we don't really talk about disability. It's not really a part of discourse in a way that folks who aren't necessarily affected with it, either personally or through family members more understand that because it's been so sort of shunned in society. Right. So there's been a lot of talk in the last year, maybe more about disability, but a lot of what's going on when services are not provided is, well, we don't know how. And you tell them how, and then they say, oh, well, you know, these are, this is great but you need to do it yourself. Like, I'm asking you to provide, you know, or you're not disabled enough. Like, okay, what constitutes as disabled enough and what constitutes as, you know, being completely abled? Because it's one of those things where it's like, okay, are we playing gatekeeper here? And I've seen some of it. Mm -hmm. And people are going to hate me for saying this. I've seen some of it in the disability community itself, where it's like, you're not disabled enough, or you're, you know, the wrong kind of disability, or your politics are wrong, all kinds of things. And, and that just boils down to, you know, like, 
Dr. Seuss and the Sneetches is like, you're different. You're not one of us. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the lesson of that story that Dr. Seuss wrote, and I'm not saying that Dr. Seuss is a great guy. I'm saying that the story has a good overall idea here is that they found a way to combine their differences and live together, which is something I would like to see more of and less of this. He said, she said type back channel things. I think it it goes to even some of the broader issues that are, are being discussed when we, you know, we're, we're talking about racism, we're talking about sexism and homophobia, and we're talking and addressing about each of these. And for so many years, advocates, a number of advocates have been saying, hey, these are all interconnected. They're, they're all a piece of the same problem. And if, if in our own group, we're not addressing these things, even though, yeah, we might be you know, advocating for disabled rights, but if we're not advocating for every person's disabled rights, no matter what, it, it's still a problem, you know. And I, I think I felt it um, personally. It's been it was a long road just to accept my own disabilities because for a long time I have um, ADHD and depression, and for a long time it was you know I had a lot of internalized kind of ableist beliefs of well, I'm not that disabled, right? Or I'm not, I can't identify as disabled because, well, I've, I've got it better off than some other folks do. And, and it really took a lot of self-reflection to understand, well, well, that's not necessarily the case. You know, it's, we're all, we're all fighting the same fight. It's just, we're all starting in maybe a little different place where we might need a little different support. Right. We're, we're all fighting the same fight. And I mean, I play tabletop, so it's like we're all different classes, we're all different levels, and we need to work together as a team, because if we don't, we're screwed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's in going down to the root base of the argument, I was just reading, um, oh, her name's missing me, uh, Stacey Ann Chin's poem, All Oppressions Are, um, what was it? I can't remember the name of it. All the all oppressions are interconnected there. All, all oppressions are connected. That's her poem. And just, just realizing how each of these identities is, is so intertwined. And when we're fighting one and not addressing another, we're just perpetuating that same, same system. And it, it just is kind of a, an, a never ending cycle that, that allows those that, that are, are in the, the, positions of power to just kind of keep the status quo, you know? And so I guess how, because for me in, in working in physical activity and being in kinesiology, you know, I often feel like it's almost a afterthought, right? That we don't, nece- we're not necessarily included in these ideas of discussing public health or even looking at other areas of, of injustice and inaccessibility is kind of physical activity. Kinesiology kind of gets put over here when, of course, in my biased opinion, we, we tend to be kind of everywhere. We're right. We've, we impact everywhere. So I guess having that experience studying in kinesiology and kind of going through there, how do you see physical activity and, and 
kinesiologists fitting into a broader public health goal? Uh, yeah, so I think kinesiology really does play a really important part. I mean, you get to learn about nutrition, you get to learn about things like how the body moves, you know, you get to learn all kinds of really interesting stuff about the physical aspect of, you know, staying healthy. But at the same time, it's like, okay, kinesiology tends to want to profile everything Kinesiology wants to tend to profile everything as male and, you know, like 18 to 20 something. And they tend to forget that, you know, the movement and the ability to move or find joy from movement depends on the person. And I ride a road bike. I took me several used bikes off of Craigslist until somebody took in my family decided, hey, you really seem to be enjoying this. Why don't we get you this for your, get you a brand new one all of yourself, yeah. you know, no problem. So you can stop harassing the guy at the bike shop. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Brand new one, all yours, never been ridden before. And it's a lot of fun. It's that, it, but at the same time, you see some gatekeeping where it's like, I'm not fast enough. I'm not riding in the right gear. I'm, you know, not doing this correctly. And sometimes kinesiology gets so bogged down in the technical aspect of it that they forget that, you know, movement can bring joy for people. And for some people, yeah, it hurts. I mean, I've got bad days. Mm -hmm. I have days where I don't want to be doing it. I have days where it is hard, but sometimes just working through the pain and everybody's going to be different is the difference between, you know, a better day, not necessarily a really good day, but a slightly better day and a really, really bad day where I'm just, you know, flat out on the sofa. Wish kinesiology would realize that there's more to the profile of an athlete or somebody who is looking to be healthy for, you know, reasons other than sports or what have you. That to me touches a really important point that we, we even in society, um, broadly, you, know, you think of athletics and we, we think about professional athletes and we think about folks who, who excel and exceed. And we don't think about just the fact that sport can be fun. Activity can be fun. And that's really, that's the important piece of it, right? I mean, we hopefully get health benefits from it. We hopefully are able to find community and find folks similar to ourselves and all those great things. It doesn't have to be a competition, right? It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to necessarily be organized for you to have or get benefit from it. And I think that's for disabled folks in the work I do often focuses on autistic individuals and their experiences is that's been a huge piece is just if we're talking about health and, and being healthy, physical activity is so important, but we don't, as you said, even in other aspects, we don't have opportunities or access for folks to find those things, just even just general joy, because I think too often we you're right. Kinesiology, we say this is the right way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, well, you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> right. Uh, so I guess 
in, in, from a public health perspective, how can we be more supportive for disabled folks in terms of accessing physical activity or even making communities more accessible for physical activity? So the area I just moved to, I moved from Dallas to Huntsville this fall, and everybody here, you know, there's sidewalks, they're, you know, relatively accessible. I don't feel like I'm going to get flattened by a dump truck that happened to somebody in the bike club I was in back in Dallas. Um, but it's like, people are doing it right here for some reason. It's like people are, people that, you know, some words, um, something that kinesiology can do is encourage people to get out and just move, find joy mm -hmm. in a walk around the block with your dog or a, mm -hmm. you know, your favorite podcast. I've done that. Or this podcast, right? This show. <laughs> yeah. Hey, whatever works. Um, or, you know, Buy yourself an inexpensive bike from Walmart and hit the bike trail mm -hmm. in your community. Just please wear a helmet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's Absolutely. like it doesn't have to be super technical. And that's what I want kinesiology to remember. It's like, please, 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 please encourage people to find joy in the movement to, you know, find ways to make it accessible. There are things like um, running frames for people who have difficulty standing while running and, you know, there are recumbent bikes. There's a lot of equipment. The kinesiology just doesn't seem to recognize as a thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, we already have a lot of sort of accessibility aids. We just probably have too much ingrained stigma to see them as options. Um, and, and particularly for folks who I think probably acquire disability at a later stage in life and now have to totally reconstruct potentially their identity as an athlete and, and the fact it might look different. What barriers, I mean, other than the obvious, the ones we just talked about, but what other barriers from a public health perspective exist in, in trying to get people physically active? A lot of it is stigma. And for some people, it really is racism. I've seen, I've seen cases recently of people of color who are out jogging, biking, running, you know, what have you being set on by some jerk who thinks he's got something to prove and thinks that he's basically the neighborhood watch for the entire community. And he's self-appointed himself as that. Yeah. And it's like, no, I mean, I want these people to feel safe and be out there enjoying, you know, whatever. If this is their way of blowing off steam, if this is their way of processing through their day, I want them to have that ability. And right now, that is one of the biggest things I'm seeing is, you know, just the racism. And then you've got the, you know, stigma, the fat phobia, the just the craziness that is going on with. Um, just your body's not right. And it's like, no, if you're out there, you have a body and you are moving it and you are enjoying yourself, then you're doing it right. It's, um, and again, I think it's, it's a point where some of it, probably a lot of it is intentional and, and, and is rooted in, in racist negative beliefs, but 
also it's sometimes subtle and just messaging. I think, you know, when I use even our, our rec center here at the university and, and I go in, you, you see a certain type of person there. And if that person doesn't look like you, you, you feel that difference when you try to access any of the equipment, you know, it's, if it's not set up for you as a wheelchair user or, or if you have a visual impairment or, or whatever, if it, if the constant messages are, you're what not welcome here, your body type is not welcome here. I mean, you sort of get to a point of like, well, what's the point? I mean, it, it just, it's sometimes I think we just, we don't do enough to really address those aspects, particularly as kinesiologists, but I think broadly as society. Uh, do we have any examples, though, of places, organizations, even people that are that are getting things right or even maybe even some things right? I haven't found one yet. I'm still looking. And that's just because, like I said, this is still kind of uncharted territory for me. I've been yeah. hacking a lot on my own, but I, if you're interested in hiking, I I correct myself. There is disabled hikers, and then yep. there I is. I just talked with Siren. Yeah, I talked yeah. with Siren last uh, last show. So yeah, okay. absolutely. So she's doing yeah, wonderful there's, stuff. There's disabled hikers, and then um, there's Jenny Bruso from Unlikely Hikers. She's how I kind of found out about the whole, you know size issues with women's clothing and everything. That's very cool. I've not heard of that one. I'll have to check them out. That's very cool. So as a part of your work, I know you've, um, you now work as an outreach specialist and you've also done some stuff in film and um, helping out with that. Could you talk about what your roles have been there and then how does that fit in, in sort of the broader aspect of your public health advocacy? Um, yeah, at the Alliance, it's a lot of communications, making sure that the communications are uh, disability centric and the language is correct for the audience that it's going to. Like, um, we have things that go to organizational partners, but what we really want to concentrate on is that our members feel like our language is inclusive and reflective of them as people with disabilities and then we have you know our webinars and a couple other things that we've done in the past that talk about some of the issues that people with disabilities are going through and then for film it's mostly been about the creative end of I'm a person with a disability I can do this too I have a story to tell um, like Invalid Corps was talking about a very real group of men during the Civil War. They were Union soldiers. They were disabled. They were considered next to useless. But, you know, mm -hmm. there was an actual group, a regiment. Uh, military terms are not my thing. So if somebody would like to correct me, please feel free. <laughs> and But basically, they were they fought part of the war, too. They were used yeah. as prisoner transport. They were, you know, supply depot, all all kinds of things. Um, Day Al Muhammad, it's her film. It, she's produced a lot of other stuff too that's reflective of disability history. Yeah, I actually I just purchased from Bookshop 
the disabled history of the United States. It should be, it's hopefully getting here tomorrow. So I'm excited to read that, but just a whole kind of aspect of history that's there that is really looked over that we don't really talk about much at all. I think it's absolutely important. And we do have some questions coming in. And I think with the first one being, you know, could you speak to your experience from a female perspective in terms of accessibility while being disabled and then having to ask or having to to find aid when needed? Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So the way I grew up was a disability is a weakness and ask and having to ask for assistance, especially if you're female is really bad. And I've had professors that I've had to go to and say, I need help. I don't understand this. And they had, they were male professors, you know, cis het male white professors, like, Mm -hmm. you, you know, a meme that I can quote is basic white guy or average white guy, that sort of level of confidence. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. I might have to use that one. And um, they're like, if you're, you know, if you need help, you need to drop this class. And mm. that's my experience in asking for help is like, okay, you would have given this to a male student, but you wouldn't have given it to me. And I've asked, I'm asking for help. I understand the assignment is due today and I'm willing to take a zero on it. I just want to understand it. Mm-hmm. And then I've flown with um, braces and stuff. And TSA seems to really like to single me out because I do not like to wear what they, I guess, think is appropriate clothing. I wear leggings and big sweaters. They think I'm hiding something. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I flew to Tash in 2019 and going through Yuma, Arizona, because that was how my ticket was cheapest. Uh, they made me take my shoes off and run them through the scanner thinking it had a bomb. Flying with uh, any type of aid is a struggle. And I, I know there's her name is escaping me right now, but just the whole situation with United. Yeah, the wheelchair. And, and we'll, it just... It's awful. I mean, just trying to do that. And then again, as a, as a female trying to even ask for that help, there's already that built-in bias. Yeah. You think that, okay, if I ask for help, are they going to think I'm faking it? Or are they going to think I'm asking for attention? What are they thinking? What's going through their mind? Because, you know, as a female, a lot of times you're raised to do as much for yourself as possible, because if you ask for help, somebody might take advantage of you. And it's sad that that is the essentially the reinforced story that we're telling women and continue to tell women no matter what. And then it really is. Um, and then layer on top of it, right? Disability and, and any other type of potential um, minoritized or otherized condition or not condition, but other, you know, identity that one might have, right? It's just layers on layers. I had another question about ableism, particularly, but. Do you have you felt you've experienced ableism more in Texas or the South, or is this something we need to really address across the country? I think it's something that should be addressed across the country. Honestly, it's not limited to geographic locations. It's not limited to the South. It's not limited to Texas. It's a product of human nature and the media teaching us a lot of 
really unfortunate things, especially on social media. And it just exacerbates, right? I mean, it it, it just exacerbates I, it. I've not read all of them, but of course, reading some of the Facebook files that are released on, on Instagram and just body image alone, right? I mean, and these are kids and I mean, mostly girls, but kids who I, I mean, probably aren't having, they aren't disabled or they aren't um, a, a minority, they aren't someone who might be trans and we know they're, it's impacting them. We don't, I mean, we can't even, I don't begin to fathom the, just the impact it has on kids who, who don't have that representation to realize they don't see themselves in somebody in, or, or it's either explicitly or implicitly told to them, not something that you can talk about, right? It's not something that's that you should be happy or proud of or, or anything along those lines. Yeah. And women can be some of the meanest to each other, not just men, but women. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it probably has, you know, something involved with just people wanting to hold on to that little bit maybe that they have <laughs> and not realizing that if if we only just say it would be a little more open let's we like you said i think you know and i looked at your stickers uh on your red bubble and i love the one about the pie and you're absolutely right that like this isn't we're not dividing up pieces of pie here <laughs> like it's not yeah solely you know, it's not an infinite right i mean giving up a little bit of one's privilege is not equivalent to the oppression of somebody else. And I think, right. I mean, um, rights and privileges are not finite. And just because somebody has something doesn't, or let me rephrase it. Just because somebody doesn't have something does not mean that you need to prevent them from getting it. It means that you might need to look at why they don't have that. Exactly. I know you run your own website and blog that's focused on public health and, and disability inclusion. And what, in your opinion, what are things that, that we can address, whether it's in our own community, our own little space that we have control over? And then what might be some things that we could try to push for, organize, or help find? In a, in a broader sense. So maybe those are two questions separately, so you feel free to answer them independently or together. Inclusion is usually, when I'm talking about it, I'm usually talking based on my experience. Mm -hmm. And other people have had different experiences in relation to inclusion. But I think that we really need to focus on things like education and access to you know, basic rights. Like if you're able to vote and you can't go vote because the polling place isn't accessible, then that's a problem. If you can't, you know, complete a complete a class or whatever because because um, captions or ASL isn't available, then that is a problem and that is I believe a violation, I want to say a 504. Mm -hmm. and, and the and thing is school districts act like they don't even care. Yeah. It's, it's a major, major problem. As somebody yes. who is an educator on this side, absolutely. I mean, I think it just, 
even working with parents in in trying to get them access, say, here's what you are legally entitled to. Sometimes they're so afraid to lose what they already have that they won't advocate or fight for what they already are legally able, you know, that they are, are entitled to, to begin with. So good old cat butt. That's a good thing to have in live stream. So no worries. No worries at all. But I mean, I, I know we're about at time. We've, we've been talking for a long while. I'm sure, Elaine, I could talk with you all day about this. Um, you've given me a lot to think about. And I hope you've given those listening stuff to think about as well. I guess I'd, I'd like to finish by letting you kind of say, in, in your perfect world, what do you envision for folks in terms of public health? What, what, are, we, what are we shooting for? I just really, in perfect world, I really want people to be able to gain access to the supports they need, be able to afford basic necessities. I've heard from, you know, I've seen so many GoFundMes and things like, I need help getting out of debt. I need help this. I need help that. And it's like, if we could just, you know, pay people decently, because that's part of a social determinant of health. And one of those things where it's like, you know, I understand that some jobs are really, really awful. I've worked my fair share, but I just want everybody to be able to be taken care of, to be able to, you know, live a comfortable life, take care of themselves and take care of their loved ones. I think that's a good goal to strive for. Elaine, again, thank you so much. I've really appreciated our conversation. Thanks so much again for, for joining. I yeah, super sure. appreciate it. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. I hope you all join us next time. Today's sponsor is KitCaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with KitCaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. KitCaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast.